How many of you like it? How many of you don't like it? Okay, I, I think it's created for morning people. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> Give morning people more light and things. I tell you, it gets dark too quickly now. And, uh, but anyway, it is what it is. You adjust to it, but we're glad you've adjusted. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed an extra hour of sleep, whatever the case may be. And we'll get used to it being darker a little earlier now as we go along, won't we? Romans chapter number 9. I'm not going to take a long time to review. In fact, I won't even go over some of what's on your notes there. Uh, you know it well. We've been in the chapter for quite a while. So let's just jump in right where we left off last or two weeks ago. We made this statement. This is very crucial to understanding the passage. It's this statement. Man's choice, his free will, his volition, uh, determines where he will spend eternity, what he does with Christ. Uh, faith in him or rejection of Jesus Christ. While God delivers him there and derives glory glory from it. So that's how we understand this passage and God's working in it and through it. And yea, his sovereign choice of preference, of favor, of grace, and some mercy, and yet uh, he withholds it in other instances. And uh, in, uh, yet it has nothing to do with salvation in and of that. Number two, we made this statement too, and I think it's appropriate. It comes from Eddie Rogers. He said, God is going to be glorified through everything. The Bible speaks to that fact. God's love is magnified in heaven, and God's justice is manifest in hell. True statement. And the reality that he is going to be glorified in everything. All right, so now we come to letter E on the outline real quick, where he, he is going to delve into this. And this is exciting. If we have enough time, we'll get to it. It kind of brings this section, the, the section of Romans chapter 9 to a close, uh, to the apex, if we might describe it as such. And so the last thing we see here that he describes is uh, contrasting God's sovereignty with man's accountability. Okay? So he's anticipating immediately the logical progression uh, of someone who's thinking through this and coming up with questions. Okay, well, what are the or arguments or whatever the case may be? So logically kind of saying, okay, wh- where does this lead? And that brings us to verse 19. Notice it. Thou wilt say then unto me. He's anticipatory of the response and the question. I love this about Paul. He, he's thinking ahead and he's understanding what are going to be the arguments, what are going to be the things that people, I'm not so sure about this. Here's the question. Notice it. Why doth he, God, yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? So the logic is as follows as Paul anticipates. If God is sovereign and working everything out for his purposes, uh, making choices to dispense and withhold grace, to uh, dispense and withhold mercy and compassion, How in the world does he then in turn hold me accountable is what Paul's anticipating the question to be. How can he find me at fault for my sin and my choices? Well, what do we get right away? Have you ever dealt with a teenager or a child or maybe even another adult and you're talking about something and they jump to the extreme conclusion? They go to the extremes like, wait a minute, I didn't say that. I'm not saying that. That's literally what Paul's anticipating. Somebody said, well, if God's making sovereign choices that impact my life, then why am I held accountable? Wait a minute. It's not saying that God overrides your will and your choices. It's just saying that God and his sovereignty and his omniscience, his omnipotence, God is going to work everything out for his grand purpose and plan, all of your individual choices. It's amazing truth that God in heaven does that. And yet here is a jumping to an extreme, if we might go uh, put it as such. We go from uh, sovereign choices of God in the area of mercy and compassion, of preference, along with him working things out according to his ultimate purposes, 
to mankind just being puppets on a string with no choice in the matter, thereby rendering man unable to be held accountable for what he does. That's what Paul's anticipating. Someone going to the extreme of saying, oh, wait a minute. that means I, I shouldn't be held accountable for my choices and things. And so uh, we see that. We understand that, yeah, mankind can jump to that logically. Mankind can be led down that path of looking at God and asking that question. Well, look at verse 20. Let's see how... Uh, Paul responds, and he does so in a robust manner. He says this, Nay, no, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? So the immediate response is this, Who is man to question and argue with God? Literally, he's saying something like this, Remember your place, mankind. Remember who you are. Remember your place in all of this. Um, were you ever or have been around a, uh, maybe a smart-mouthed teenager that said something to a mom or dad? Mom and dad reminded them of their place. Remember, remember, pecking order, remember the place here. Literally, that's what Paul's saying. Who are you, the one formed, questioning the one who forms? The creator of God. It just smacks of a New Testament version of what happened in the book of Job. As Job was reasoning with his friends and Bill had and the other guys and, and going back and, and Job said them some things there and boy, for those 40 chapters or whatever, uh, 30-something chapters that he questions, he questions, he questions and then God comes along. You remember what God said? We said it a few weeks ago. God comes along and says, um, Job, where were you when I created everything? Are you there when those animals are fed? When I watch over them, when I created this, uh, do you control Leviathan? And do you, I mean, he just puts Job where? In Job's place. And Job repented. We saw that just a couple Sundays ago. In reality, of Job's response, he, he kind of got back in his place and said, who am I to question you? And, and Paul's kind of alluding to that. Oh, why would you question mankind? Is man really in a position to question an infinitely wise God? You, you, ever, have, you ever have your child ask you, not a dumb question, but a ignorant question they they and their limited knowledge didn't understand it they didn't grasp why they, they asked the question and, and and you can just tell they just can't get it they're just not they're not capable of understanding it. You, you know friend there are some things that an infinite god does and thinks and acts that that you and i can't even begin to understand as finite beings with finite knowledge, there's a reality to that. Let me put it this way. To fully understand God, to fully understand God, we would have to be on an equal level with God, the one who made us. And friend, that's just flat out ridiculous. Because we aren't. We aren't on the level of God. Furthermore, to make such an accusation as we find in this passage, it bespeaks one's ignorance of the character of God, which Paul has astutely presented here in this passage and even the previous. He's established that God is just, that God is righteous, that He is loving, He's merciful and gracious. And beyond the fact that He allows the blessings of life such as rain from heaven to fall upon the just and the unjust alike, he has promised to work all things out for our good. Romans chapter 8. 
You see, rooted in our ignorance of the infinite mind of God and of the way in which our one decision or numerous decisions fit into the plan of all eternity. Such questioning cast a disparaging shadow upon the very sovereignty of God. Really, what Paul's anticipating here is an attempt by mankind to throw responsibility and accountability back at God's feet. May I just use a biblical example? Okay, What did Adam say to God when he followed Eve? The woman that you gave me. And this is the age-old, human-consistent uh, response. Okay, well, God, it's your fault. You created me. <laughs> or you created her. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're going back to here. It's like, well, then I can't be held accountable if there's choices that you make for preference and choices you make for blessings, giving grace, withholding grace, and so forth and so on. We look back at God and we try to point fingers at Him and blame Him. That, that's what we see in this verse here. And Paul is shooting that down quickly. Who art thou that repliest against God? Our ignorance or lack of understanding, now don't miss this, our ignorance of how God works and what He does, our lack of understanding should not move us to question and argue and accuse God, but you know what it should do? It ought to move us to take God up on His offer. And what is His offer? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. So ask for wisdom, ask for knowledge. God, I don't see how this is all working out, and I don't see how you're orchestrating this. My friend, God will use every single decision. God will use every single outplaying of a person's life for his ultimate plan and purpose. Why? He is a sovereign God, and he's an omnipotent God. He will be able to do it. He is able to do it. And sometimes you and I need to just sit back and by faith trust in him and what he's doing. Paul is presenting a fantastic case here. Notice verse 21, he goes on. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Great statement. Uh, Literally, number two, you see it here. Here's his second answering to that question. He says this, doesn't the potter wield absolute authority over the clay? So it's answering a question with a question. Very profitable and a logical discussion or argument in many times. Literally, that can't be questioned. For the clay to look up at the potter and question what he is doing is ludicrous at best. The point has to be granted. It has to be acknowledged. Yes, you know what? The potter has absolute authority over the clay. As he sits there and we think of the physical image that God himself even used this time, the potter forming the clay, he has absolute power and authority over that clay. And in that absolute authority, it's his prerogative. The potter's prerogative stands uncontested and alone. He chooses. How he forms the clay is subject to his pleasure alone. So literally, some of the things that have happened in your life, as God has made sovereign choices, we've alluded to the family you grew up in, where you live, what nation you're in, and and so forth and so on, there's choices that have been sovereign choices. It's according to His desire, His pleasure. 
Now, it is crucial to make a distinction here. Look at the verbs that are used in verses 20 and 21, if you will. Uh, It talks about the clay being formed. It it talks about the idea of them being made or make, uh, make the clay. Those verbs literally mean, as you look at them, even in the Greek, the reality is that it literally means to mold, okay? To shape as you think about it, as a, as a potter would sit at a, the wheel and shape the clay, it literally means to mold it, to make it into something. The substance is already there. The, uh, it's not the idea of creating something right now. So understand this. Certainly God has created. He's created every person. But this passage is not dealing with creation. It's talking about a sovereign God who uh, is taking a substance that already exists, the makeup of the clay being already established, and he's not creating the clay for something. No, he's molding it and making it. He's taking it and shaping it and forming it, and he's doing things to the clay that's already present in its substance. I like how one author put it in Sometimes they say it much better than I would. His name is Tom Westwood, and uh, many years dead now. Uh, he, he put it this way, and I like his description of it. He said this, We forget that God, who devised the plan of universal blessing in eternity past, had the ability, yea, literally the foreknowledge, to look down the avenue of the centuries and make note that certain of his creature, or creatures excuse me, would respond to his mercy, his grace, you could say there too, and would reject it. He goes on, in view of what he foreknow, he could then lay plans that those who in time would be disobedient should be destined towards wrath. We'll see in a verse here, in a, in a moment, the vessels of wrath, that's what he's alerting to. And those who in time would be obedient should be prepared unto glory. This does not conflict with the fact that God's offer of mercy is presented to his intelligent creatures and they themselves shall determine whether they are vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy, which we'll look at as verse 23 says, and uh, according to the way in which they treat God's goodness presented in God's way. Great statement, great to, we'll see that kind of play out in these verses ahead, but understand what he's saying. Fact is this, hey, everyone has a choice in how they respond, and, and they are determined in that sense, and yet God takes that in like a potter with the clay, molds it through his sovereign choices. What have we already established? He always brings himself glory through every life. Whether it's a Pharaoh, whether it's a Cain that killed his brother Abel. I mean, that is like the worst of the worst. But can I tell you, you know, through that, God still got the glory. He used those decisions, those bad decisions by Cain. And we could go on and Herod and many others that we could think from biblical history. We could name them and we could say, well, wait a second. God gained the glory from that. We understand that as the great potter, that God takes every life, forms it, He uses the material that's already inherent to each person. Literally, what is in their heart, something that he alone knows, and he's known for all of eternity past. Uh, He he chooses, then, how to form and shape. As we said, whose one's parents are, uh, what country they grow in, what advantages they'll have in life, what disadvantage they'll have in life, and, and he makes those sovereign choices. What is often our failure? As he says here, we forget. Well, the fact is this. We often have the veil or the limitation of looking at things with a time perspective. 
we understand scriptures, it pretty much eradicates the idea of a time perspective for God, right? Uh, a day is as a, how many years? A thousand years, right? And a thousand years is one day. Literally what he's saying is listen, the, the whole time thing that you and I operate, because you and I, we operate by 24 hours in a day, and uh, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute, so forth and so on, seven days in a week, 12 months in a year, and so forth and so on. We, we are so time-oriented and so time-perspective, it's sometimes hard for us to remember that God is outside of time. He operates both in action and in knowledge outside of time. And I'll tell you, whew, that can blow your mind, trying to wrap it around that. And yet that's reality. He, is, he knows before a person's born what is in that person's heart. And so in so doing, he can then orchestrate and move, make sovereign choices like a potter to a clay uh, to make that person a vessel of honor and dishonor, as we'll describe here in a moment, and to ultimately bring himself glory um, from the actions and the choices that are inherently a person and comes from their heart. Think of it this way, and trying to kind of bring it down. Uh, Let's put it into an easier, uh, uh, more palatable statement. Every circumstance, event, and ingredient of our lives is a stroke of the potter's hand in our lives. Upon us, the clay, molding us and making it our lives into the desired outcome to fulfill God's purpose, all without compromising our volition, our free will. Um, the makeup of the clay, what's inherent, the inherent substance of who we are. Now, let's remember what this is in context, because this is difficult as we separate it over many Wednesday nights. Let's remember the whole context of Romans chapter 9. It is in the context of looking at Esau and Jacob, of Isaac and his brothers, uh, of looking at Moses and Pharaoh, and eventually what we'll see, he then brings these thoughts to bear on the Jews and the Gentiles. You'll look ahead, we'll see it in verse 23 and 24. Uh, he, he, he's starting to introduce this thought in the next couple chapters of how the Jews have been, uh, they've been broken off, the Gentiles grafted in, and then uh, he'll, he'll introduce all that, we'll get to it. So it's kind of the precursor to us understanding the sovereign choice of God in perverting some to vessels of honor, some to be vessels of dishonor, that all serve the greater purpose of his big plan or ultimate plan. Think of it this way. A pile of clay as it sits there, and I was going to bring, bring Play-Doh or clay or something, okay? But I did. But think of that, that, a pile of clay there, and I can take this one, and I, I can form it into a nice cup and uh, let it harden, and it becomes a cup in which we serve Dr. Pepper, amen? And uh, someone said we should take that welcome center out there and just stock it full of Dr. Pepper, amen, okay? Um, but uh, think, think of that, forming that thing. Let, let's say we take the other thing of clay, and we, we form it into, and, and uh, forgive me, but it's the, the thing that I can only think of, a, a chamber pot. Okay, if, if you don't know what a chamber pot is, ask somebody who didn't grow up with indoor plumbing. We'll just leave it at that. It was a nocturnal use, okay? So we'll just leave it right there, okay? So think of it, two, I mean, two piles of clay, they're, they're both clay. They, they're both the same substance in a sense, and yet God says, or we should choose this lump of clay to be a cup, and uh, certainly for a great purpose, holding Dr. Pepper, and this one for a chamber pot. 
It's talking about this context of preference and choosing some of the vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor. Verse 21, hath not the powder power of the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor. Listen, hey, we are all mankind. We're all the same dirt made up of. And God can sometimes, and not just sometimes, can always say, okay, I'm going to bless Israel. I'm going to bless Moses, show them immense grace and mercy and compassion favor over here he's going to have limited time oh yeah there's grace afforded and he can have faith in me but i'm going to withhold that and he wants a hardened heart i'll give him the hardened heart and you remember us looking a couple wednesdays ago the same thing actually happened with israel later on we saw that in the latter part of the old testament so God does that. Romans chapter 1, giving them over, giving them over. So it happens with Gentiles too. So understanding the whole scheme, the whole reality, that God says, look, I, I can do this. He, he can raise up vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, dealing with preference and dealing with his prerogative as the potter. I find it very interesting that at different times in the Old Testament, you know what God did? He brought up this illustration. In fact, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter uh, number 18, deals with it in the first 10, 13 verses. He sends Jeremiah to a potter's house to watch it and to use it as an illustration for Israel. In verse 6, I just picked it out there. God speaking through Jeremiah, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? As Jeremiah went there and he was taking notes and he was writing about it and speaking to Israel about it, saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. So God's using this illustration to Israel. He says, listen, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I can, I can set you up with blessings and so forth, but my friend, just as easily, when you follow after idols and you give yourself to another nation, I can pull that back. It's of me, the potter. I can make you a vessel unto honor. Now listen to me. Don't miss this. He can look at Israel and use Israel and bless Israel and raise them up to be a mighty nation like when they entered the promised land and the nations around the world were shaking in their boots because of what they heard God had done. Or he can make Israel, as he had to do, become the shame of the world. Allowing this one great nation to be carried away into captivity, becoming a vessel unto dishonor who was once a vessel unto honor. But you know what? Both ways, who got the glory? God did. Both ways, the world saw and said, wait, there is a God in, jo- in the promised land. There is a God in There is a God in Israel. I mean, even the pagan nations look at Israel and say, boy, what did you do to get treated this way? A vessel unto dishonor. God does sovereign choices, yea, of their own heart. And Hebrews alludes to it. As in the day of provocation, don't harden your heart. That's a choice, personal choice. Harden my heart against it. And God can make his choices to, to give us what we want at times in that. It's interesting. Some in Israel caught on to this illustration. Isaiah wrote about it. If you might remember our study, Isaiah 64, 8. He said, but now, O Lord, thou art the father, we are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Just an admission, acknowledgement that I'm the clay before Almighty God. He goes on, uh, God gives us a glimpse through Paul into how and why he forms different vessels through his sovereign choice. Look at verse 22 again, or not again, but look at verse 22 and 23 with me. 
What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might, not, might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. Now listen, immediately when we read verse 22, there's some that want to point out, especially Calvinists and Reformed theology, they want to point out, see, aha, God made some unto destruction. Look at the statement that he made them. He fit them for destruction. But that's not what the verse says. Okay, And it certainly is incongruent with the rest of scriptures. Let me show you. Okay, Uh, Instead, what we find are three elements that are presented in this verse that I think are crucial for us to bear out. The first is this. Uh, He alludes that he is not willing, or that he is willing, excuse me. So that's indicative of the will of God playing out within the lives of each vessel. He is going to bring about his will, his plan, his purpose in the life of every vessel. Notice it. What if God, willing to show his wrath and his power through the vessel, his interactions with the vessel, um, the aspects of his revealed that are of his will that are revealed in this verse are first of all his wrath. And how would we describe his wrath? Well, think of righteous indignation or judgment upon sin and transgression. So it's on display through his interaction with these vessels of wrath as described here. Notice it. And then also his power. And what's noted is that God is limitless in his power. His omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, it's limitless. And it's on display in his interactions with with some of these vessels that are vessels of wrath. And we're going to see that here in a moment, um, the the difference there. Uh, See, the first thing that we understand that uh, he forms people's lives, he makes them vessels of dishonor, literally. He, 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 he holds back mercy, he holds back grace. How do you want to describe it? Like an Esau, he wasn't blessed like Jacob, like the Gentiles back in the days of Israel. They weren't blessed like that, and yet God could bring glory from it. They were vessels of dishonor in a way, uh, all the while remaining true to and not encroaching upon their own volition or free will. And it's crucial, and we can't say it enough. You see the next statement in the outline is this truth. His sovereign choice in the orchestration of the lives of each person, each vessel, will fit into his ultimate plan. So trust his sovereign choices. Trust what he is doing. Secondly, you know what I like about this verse? I think this is so neat. We are told this, and I think this is so imperative for us to understand. In verse 22, we'll note it. We see a change in the groups of people. Did you notice it? In the prior verses, we're talking about vessels of honor and dishonor dealing with God's prerogative of preference, his blessings and so forth. Now he switches in these next two verses to vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. It's not by accident, and they're not the same thing. We'll see more about it here in a moment. But notice what he says. God endured, number two, God endured these vessels. Now, that's an interesting word, isn't it? He endured. You ever endure something? Okay? Normally, it's something that's not comfortable, not enjoyable, right? It goes against what we want. Go to the dentist. You endure going to the dentist, right? And uh, uh, things like that, you endure them. Um, literally, he's saying he put up with the vessels of wrath. 
That's an interesting statement, interesting discussion, which we'll get into in a moment. The ones whose heart is against him and rejects his offer of mercy. How does it describe him doing it? He did it with much long suffering. He endured the vessels of wrath with much long suffering. Now, it's an interesting statement, too, that we see described for us. It's, think of it this way. It's amazing, but it's also thought-provoking, at least for me. If God made them, as some argue this passage, if God made people wicked and evil and he, he chose them for that and so forth, listen, if you make something that way, you don't then turn around and endure them with long-suffering. So if I am, have the responsibility for making something or, or creating them as such, if God did, you don't turn around and endure that. He didn't put up with something that he created. In other words, if I were to go down into a kitchen, let's say the kitchen at church here, where you were at my house, and I went to the kitchen, and I cooked me something to eat, and cooked myself up a meal, I was hungry, and I started to sit down and pray, and then I ate it, and then you walked up and you said, you don't, you don't come up to me and say, well, I sure am sorry you have to endure that meal. You know, I, I hope you show much long-suffering with every swallow of that meal that you made for you. I mean, that's ludicrous. Yeah, if I make a meal for myself, I'm going to make it taste good. I, I'm going to make it something that I enjoy. Now, listen to me. If in one thought we say God created people evil and God made them wicked and God destined them for hell, and, choice, and then we turn around and say, well, God endured with more, much long-suffering those he created for evil. My friend, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It doesn't flow with the rest of Scripture, which is more important. But the fact is this. It's not logical. It does not make sense in our understanding. Literally, it would be this. And this is what Paul alludes to. What if a potter makes a bunch of of pottery and he makes vessels and then he destroys it for the fun of it? He puts it, he makes it, he sits it on a table, and then he grabs a Louisville slugger and he just goes to baseball practice. You say, man, that's what would we call a potter like that? A madman. That's ludicrous. That's silly. That's ridiculous. Why would he do that? Well, exactly. If you're going to sit there and contend that God elected people to hell, he made them wicked and evil and created them as such, you're, in essence, calling God a madman. It doesn't make sense. It's not in keeping with the very character of God, and it would be ridiculous to write in Romans, he endured the vessels of wrath, with much long suffering. Now listen to me. Say, oh, Pastor, I think you're just reading into it. Well, I'm glad you think that, but you're wrong. Because the Bible's pretty obvious about this same thought in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us word. Why is he long suffering? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what a vessel of wrath is? Someone who's rejected God, turned their heart from God. They are destined for destruction. They are destined for wrath. You know what God wants? God wants that vessel of wrath to turn into a vessel of mercy. Now, he may have made some choices in their life that they were going to be a vessel of honor or vessel of dishonor. He may have made some sovereign choices that did not impact their eternity. It just shaped and formed their life. And yet, my friend, they of themselves have a choice whether they will be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. Trusting Jesus Christ. One deals with preference. Another deals with salvation. One deals with the blessings of of grace and so forth and so on. 
Oh, Pastor Henry, but this, this verse says these vessels of wrath, which literally means they're destined or headed for wrath, are fitted for destruction. Uh, we surmise incorrectly that the potter is the one who fits them for destruction. But that's not so, friend. Here, here's the third element that we learn of in this verse. Notice it. Uh, thirdly, vessels fitted for destruction are self-equipped through or for, excuse me, such a destiny. Vessels fitted for destruction are self-equipped for such a destiny. Notice verse 22. He endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Interesting statement. Upon the surface reading in the English, we look at that and say, okay, that makes it a little hard because if he, if he forms... If he forms the, the clay, then, then he must have fitted them for destruction. Well, this is one of those times, uh, occasions, that the original manuscripts are invaluable to us. The Greek of the New Testament teaches us something. The word translated as fitting or fitted gives us something that's not conveyed in our English translation that is crucial to us understanding the text. You see, the Greek word, the verb, is a middle voice. It's what is called a Greek reflexive action verb. They say, thank you, Pastor, now I can sleep tonight. It's helpful. What does that mean? Well, the middle voice in the Greek reflexive action verb tells us this. It's interesting. It indicates that the vessel has made itself fitted for destruction. It is in English what we might call a passive, uh, I like the term middle voice in the Greek because it gives a better description, more description, more robust. And so what it does, it helps us to understand, wait a second, it's not saying the potter has fitted the clay for destruction. No, my friend, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And for the wages of sin is death. God did not orchestrate a man's death. God does not orchestrate a man's sin. God does not send man to hell of his own choice and election, God's choice and election. No, friend, if you and I end up in hell, if somebody ends up in hell, it's because of their own choice, their own rejection of Jesus Christ. They are fitted for destruction. They are doing the action on itself that is borne out in this statement here. Don't take my word for it. W.E. Vine, very familiar for his expository dictionary of New Testament and Old Testament words. He made this statement, and he, as he described it, equipped and so forth, here the middle voice signifies that those referred to fitted themselves uh, for destruction. And his description of the Greek word here and so forth. And interesting, Mr. Vine goes on to give the illustration of Pharaoh <laughs> as being one who did just that and fitted himself for destruction. And as that may be the case, that man makes himself through sin and a heart choice fit or prepared for destruction, the heart of God has not changed. First Timothy chapter uh, 2 and verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. It isn't God that's fitting people for destruction and, and uh, electing them to hell and the lake of fire. No. It, it, it's interesting, too. There's another contrast found in this passage. A lot here. I understand. A lot to unpack. But it's found in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 22. He endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fit of destruction. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto 
glory. Now, stark contrast to verse 22. Don't miss this. I get excited about it. I hope you will too. Okay? In verse 22, what happens? They fitted themselves into destruction. But do you notice who's fitting the vessels of mercy for glory? Who's doing it? God is. God's the one doing the preparing. God's the one that's taking you and I as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and by God's grace and God's spirit and God's word, what does he do every day? He prepares us for glory. You've heard me say it before. You know our goal in sanctification, we're studying in adult Sunday school classes being holy, holy. And you know what the goal is? Is that when I die, when I come to graduation day as a Christian, that God has very work left to be done to make me from what I am to being glorified to being perfect in Jesus Christ. I am striving with every passing day to change into the very image of Jesus Christ in my words, in my actions, in my thoughts, in how I live my life. Can I reach sinless perfection on earth? Certainly not. But I'll tell you, my friend, with God's help, the Holy Spirit and God's word, in God's grace and strength and mercy, I can live each day with less sin. I can do better as a Christian. And so my goal in sanctification is to do that. And who is doing it? Oh, it's not me, not my efforts. It's the Holy Spirit and God's Word and God's grace working in me, doing what? Preparing me for glory. He's working in these vessels of mercy, those who have accepted Jesus Christ through faith, mercy, compassion, and grace. He's working in us to prepare us, to make us fitting. Now, here's where it gets interesting, isn't it? As he contrasts and notice what we found out here, these vessels of honor, dishonor. Now he speaks of vessels of wrath and of mercy. He's talking about different terms here, just as he did, the, again, the vessel of wrath. It's two different groups. The one dealing with that special preference Okay, the, uh, his sovereign choice of extending grace, withholding it, mercy, compassion, extending it, withholding it. That's all dealing with preference. Esau, Jacob, Israel, Gentile, Moses, Pharaoh, so forth and so on. But then he switches and he begins talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, which all, oh, sorry, which all deal with salvation. Salvation by faith alone in God's work alone. Great distinction. And, and forgive me for my inability to convey it, but Paul is helping us to understand. Boy, he's bringing us along in our understanding of God's working and saying, okay, yes, he, he shows preference. Yes, he, he, he gives blessings in different ways, holds it and so forth. He's, he's working like a potter with the clay. But ultimately, God's desire is that all of us should not perish but come to repentance. That all of us would be vessels of mercy, who, as this verse stated, in that, what's going to be revealed? Paul wrote about Ephesians chapter 2, around verse 7 or something, I believe. He's going to reveal to us the riches of his glory. And so, my friend, as a vessel of mercy, and in your life, and my life, in your eternity, and my eternity, God wants to reveal the riches, as it says here, make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And then he adds this little thing as a segue. Here's the great transition. Don't miss it. In fact, let me back up a second. Let's tie it all together real quick, okay? So what do we derive from thus far in chapter 9? Well, here it is. Israel was a vessel unto honor. 
we've just read in the, in the beginning of this chapter how God said, listen, who are Israelites? Paul, to whom was pertaining the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, who are the vines? So they are vessels of honor. They got special privilege and, and preference from the hand of God. Much grace and mercy was extended to them. That preferential treatment by God for his own purposes. But in the rejection of God, they made themselves vessels of wrath. Now, let me ask you this. Did God endure with much long-suffering the Jews that rejected him? Yes. For many, many years. So literally, by their own choice and their own rejection of God, they made themselves vessels of wrath, though they were vessels of honor. Preferential treatment by God in sins. And in this, yeah, even though they were vessels of wrath, there were individual Jews who became vessels of mercy through their submission and surrender to God, faith in Him, along with many Gentiles, while many in the nation continued on the path of wrath and destruction. And here's the culminating transition. Look at verse 24 and we'll be done. Even us, Paul groups us all together, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's going back to the vessels of mercy upon which God is going to show the exceeding riches of his glory. Jew and Gentile alike. You see, Paul, in this great, ultimate climactic uh, transitional point he moves ahead in his description of israel's fall from preference due to their sin and rejection of god thereby opening the door to the gentiles which then establishes the foundation for the establishment and the existence of the blessed church of christ in the new testament era made up of jews gentiles greeks and so forth and so on notice it and i'll just point your attention to chapter 11 verse 1 Here's where he's getting to. Notice what he says. I say then, hath God cast away his people? <laughs> so he's anticipating the, the Jews' response to this. Wait a minute. So we've lost out on our preference. We became vessels of dishonor, now no longer vessels of honor. There's some of us that are vessels of wrath because we've rejected God. Is God done with Israel? That's the, really the question there. And then we have the classic Pauline response, God forbid. And if you were to look at verse 13 of the same chapter, he says this, For I speak to you Gentiles. So this is a message for all of us to understand the workings of God. He has just set the table for you and I now to understand, okay, going forward, how is God working with Israel, the Gentiles, the church? How is he orchestrating everything out for our good and his glory? And my friend, it is a wonderful study to understand the heart and the mind of God, the workings of God throughout all eternity. We'll pick up next week and get back into it. Let's